Uh, we are working through the Beatitudes at the moment. So as a church, if you're spirit-empowered like we are, but you don't have Scripture, you tend to blow up. If you just use Scripture, not spirit-empowered, you tend to dry up. So we always teach from Scripture and have it spirit-empowered services so that we can grow up. And we're in week three of a four-week teaching series in the Beatitudes. Uh, I'll read a context for you. It's Matthew 4:23. Jesus has just called his disciples. So it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And it continues, verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus has just called 12 people to follow him. And he is becoming some kind of huge superstar. Wherever he goes, the crowds are there. And it'd be very, very tempting if you're one of those disciples to kind of be allured into this false sense of importance. I am proud. I am with Jesus. You feel very possessive of that relationship. But it's certainly given you a load of prestige. And with the influence that Jesus was having and the crowds following him, it had been an easy opportunity to try and take a grab for power or finances. And Jesus is aware of this. He takes the disciples away from the crowds, climbs up a mountain. Significance of a mountain is that's where God typically gives law. So Moses received the law on a mountain. Jesus is now giving the law to his disciples. And he's saying to them, there's all of these temptations about what it looks like to follow me. But you need to know that my kingdom values are very, very different from the worldly values. So he starts out with these beatitudes. Now, likely his teaching went over for about three or four days. Uh, the way Matthew has recorded it is very deliberate. He's recorded it like a student taking notes with a lecturer. And the order of these beatitudes is critical. They are sequential discipleship points. It's like what do you look like the closer you get to God? What do you look like the more that you grow up? And the sermon is, it says, here is a characteristic of a disciple. And then afterwards, it will give the reward that God is going to give. And the, ser- the beatitude is pretty much a summary of all of the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, chapters 5 to 7, which what follows. So he's saying that if you're a disciple, you're going to look very, very different from what the world looks like. He says, you'll be blessed if if you're poor in spirit. You'll be blessed if you're meek. You'll be blessed if you mourn. You'll be blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And today, we're going to look at verses 7 and 8, where he's saying that you're blessed if you're merciful and if you're pure in heart. I'm going to pray, and then I'll read and teach. Will you bow your heads? Father God, thank you that you take the initiative that wherever we are in our lives, Lord, you call us to you and you invite us to follow you. Thank you that the way of your kingdom is not the way of this world. Thank you that you instruct us, you guide us. In fact, you're living with us if we put our faith and trust in you. Father, I pray that you help us to hear from your word what it is that you'd like to speak to the very essence of our being. Father, help us to be obedient and to obey it. 
Lord, when you give us your extravagant grace, help us to respond with that radical obedience that you require. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're studying verses 7 and 8. I'll just read uh, from chapter 5 onwards. If you noticed I'm limping, it's because I did a Spartan last week, and I'm still majorly struggling. Uh, When you're over your 40s, best to train. Verse 1, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The word blessed means regardless of the situation or the circumstance, there is this deep, abiding contentment and peace because of our relationship with God. It's not a loud sound that's always there, but just like the sun is always in the sky, whether we can see it at nighttime or on a rainy day or not, this blessedness comes from a relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, you are blessed when? He says, you are blessed when you're merciful for you'll be shown mercy. When we look at the word mercy, it's not very surprising. It has a good press. 21 centuries of Christian influence on culture has helped us think that mercy is a really good thing. We want to be merciful. It pays to be merciful. But when Jesus said this to his disciples, it was shocking. In the ancient Near East, in the Greek and Roman empires, mercy was a weakness. A Roman philosopher said that that mercy is a disease of the soul. If you want to be all-conquering, you cannot have mercy. It was considered like a strength but with weakness. In fact, uh, in the Roman and Greek cultures, if you had a slave, slaves were treated as property. Yes, there were some in economic slavery, but often at the whim of, of an owner, if he was tired of a slave, or if the slave got old, it would be perfectly acceptable for him to make a last bit of money off that slave and sell them to the gladiatorial games. Same thing with a child. If a family had a daughter instead of a son, or if they had a special needs child, quite often the father would leave the child outside to let the elements take care of it. That was the culture in which Jesus was speaking to these disciples. Mercy was alien, completely alien. He's saying, blessed are the merciful. That would have really got their attention so much more than it does to ours today. It was shocking. Mercy means it's a response to misery. Mercy is a response to someone else's misery. So we see someone in misery and we have compassion and empathy. But it doesn't just stay there. We then think about it and then it moves us to action. So it's sympathy and empathy. That's nice. 
but most importantly, it's thoughts and action following that. So you could look at someone and you feel hurt. You feel the hurt. Say a kid falls over in the playground, cuts its knee, you feel hurt. And then you think about it, you understand it, you know why it's happened, but you don't just leave it there. Mercy is you go and try and cure the hurt. You go and do something about it. The characteristics of Jesus' kingdom is that you pay mercy forwards. So when you are uh, received mercy from God, you pay it forwards. Now, if you remember, if you look back at the last couple of weeks' teaching, first beatitude is when we're morally bankrupt or spiritually bankrupt. We say, nothing I can do is going to be good enough to save myself. Second beatitude is when we mourn over our sinfulness. I am deeply grieved at how I've hurt myself and others because of my selfish behavior. And I've also offended a holy God. The third beatitude is blessed are the meek, a meek person. Before a relationship with God is one that realizes, God, I can't bargain with you with anything. We don't puff our chests up and say, save me, God, I deserve it. A meek person says, God, I've got nothing. And then with that meekness, we realize that we really cannot save ourselves. And as we become aware of who God is, we desire to be more like him. It says, blessed you in hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. That means we desire a relationship with God. And we are forgiven once and for all so that we may have a relationship with God. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. When we looked at righteousness last week, there's three types of righteousness. Legal, that's when you're saved. It's a right relationship with God, kind of not guilty. Second one is moral. We desire to be more Christ-like. So the Holy Spirit living within us, he transforms us from the inside out. And the third one was social. All of the Old Testament prophets were greatly concerned with justice. They were greatly uh, concerned with freedom from oppression, promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business, discipleship in homes. And so we've received these. We've been saved. We want to become more like Christ, and we have an eye out for the world. We see the world as Jesus does with compassion. And so once we're saved, an evidence of being saved is that we become merciful. It's like if we're really forgiven, we become very forgiving. Once we know what we've been cleared of, we don't hold stuff against other people. It's the same way when we've received God's mercy and we're in that relationship with him, we extend that mercy to others. It's like being a conduit for God's never-ending supply of mercy. Just like children imitate their parents. As a disciple of Jesus, they're to imitate him. And Jesus was merciful. They didn't know yet, but we know later in the Gospel of Matthew just how many times after this teaching, Jesus showed profound mercy. And there was no qualification to who he showed it to. Notice it doesn't say, uh, blessed are the merciful to other believers. No, it's just blessed are the merciful. 
Here are some examples uh, Matthew records. Matthew 9, verses 27 to 36, Jesus heals two blind men. He then sees crowds, and instead of me thinking, help, crowds, he has compassion on them. Chapter 15, 22, he sees a Canaanite woman has a possessed daughter, and he has great compassion. And he sees the misery, and he responds to it. Chapter 17, verse 15, he has compassion on a man whose son has seizures. And again, he does something about it. Chapter 18, verse 33, it's the parable of the unforgiving servant. And Jesus uses this example. You've been forgiven so much. Of course you will extend that forgiveness to others. And again, chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus again heals true blind men. Doesn't need to do any of these things, but this is a God who cares deeply about people. And he sees them in their misery, and he does something about it. Last week, we know that something about it meant dying on the cross. I'm just giving a couple of uh, smaller examples of everyday things that God does. And so the characteristic is merciful. The reward is we receive mercy. Now, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not like God says, how merciful is that person being? Okay, and now I want a relationship with them. That's not what this means. It means once we've received mercy and we're connected to that ever, never-ending supply from God, it just naturally flows through us to other people. We're not perfect, but there is that direction. We become much more merciful than we used to be. Now, this actually links very deliberately to meekness. So the third beatitude. So meekness is acknowledging before others that we are sinners. And then being merciful is we have compassion on others, knowing that they, like us, are sinners as well. It also links uh, to the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because once God has taken a hold of your heart, you will really care about the downtrodden in the world. You'll really have a heart for children. You'll have a heart for social justice. So the world then greatly valued strength without weakness. Now we can sit here among ourselves and say, yeah, I would never send one of my children to the gladiatorial games or lead them out in the open. But the reality is the world that we live in really values strength without weakness. I'll give you a couple of examples. Most businesses are run with the profit being the bottom line. And when the profit is the very bottom line, it causes you to treat customers, employees, anyone else with less dignity than God sees that they have. Like money is more important than people. Another one, if you're in ministry, uh, if we're not merciful, uh, you can really enjoy the pastor, uh, the title of pastor. And in some places, the kind of recognition that that gives. But we really don't enjoy like, the hidden work of a pastor, praying for people when they don't even know about it, being merciful when they don't even know about it. It's very, very simple to just go through the motions and not treat people with the great dignity 
that each of them has. So verse 7, it's blessed and merciful for they'll be shown mercy. Once we've received mercy, we pass it on. At the same point, we've received mercy from God. And so the next beatitude comes out of this. It's blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When we've been forgiven, when we've received mercy, when we're a conduit for mercy, our attention and our focus is totally directed to being on God. It's what being born again means. Before you can live for your own desires, meeting your own needs, when we're born again, like we're given a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. And it's strange, but we want to live to please God, whether or not we're fully successful at it. But there is this devotion to God in place of a devotion to selves. Now, the Jewish tradition where Jesus was speaking into this environment, being ritually clean was very, very important. So it's different types of laws. One of them is a ceremonial law. This was given, you can see it given in uh, Leviticus. In the Near East, God wanted his followers, his people, to look distinct. There were different ways that he did this. And one of them was to give them really complex ceremonial laws. Some people say it had to do with hygiene and cleanliness and a whole host of other things. But the Jewish tradition at the time placed very, very high values on these ritual laws. But didn't really care for the deep moral laws. Like what's really going on in your heart. It's like turning up to Sunday in your best clothing, but being totally worldly on the inside. And so Jesus is speaking. He's saying, blessed are the pure in heart. And this can be best understood Uh, Chapter 5, verse 20, he says one phrase which summarizes the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, your righteousness will need to be greater than that of the Pharisees. And what he meant was the Pharisees had this external religion, looked really clean, but inside they couldn't give a rip about anyone. This is largely the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. It's like have a a true inside-out faith in God. Don't try and look better than other people. So being pure in your faith means being pure in the heart that you'll care what's on the inside. And what's on the inside, the new heart that God gives us, changes us on the outside. Give you an example. If you're walking down Chicago, you go down a couple of underpasses, you'll see some homeless people. Now, there could be a, a homeless person. We have no idea what their story is how they got to where they are. But we'll typically make an assessment. Oh, that person's dirty. Like, when's the last time they had a wash? And yet, that's what they look like on the outside. But inside could be the sweetest, purest, most devoted heart possible. And that's what Jesus looks at. And you could be walking elsewhere in Chicago and see a man very well-dressed or a woman very well-dressed in business attire looking like they have it all. And on the inside, there's nothing but greed and anger and jealousy and envy. And Jesus is saying it's so much better to be pure on the inside than have all of this external stuff on the outside. When we get to heaven, we'll probably be amazed at how low down on the well-done 
pastors are. You could be a celebrity pastor, but inside there's power and greed and vanity. Or you could be shopping at Jewel Osco, and there's someone kind of getting in the way on their mobility cart. They don't look anything to the world. And yet they're being so faithful and pure with what God has given them. Jesus sees this, and it matters entirely to him. And he wants it to matter entirely to his disciples. So they have all of these temptations for worldly power. The crowds are following Jesus. Hey, you're in on the select 12. Saying, no, 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 no. My standards, my kingdom's completely different. I need you to be pure in heart from the inside out. Be merciful from the inside out. So this characteristic, another way of looking at it, means uh, there's a single devotion to God. We're not double-minded, it says elsewhere in Scripture. It means who we are in church on a Sunday is who we are at midnight on Wednesday. Like there's no difference between who we are. doesn't say that we're perfect, but what it means if we're pure in heart is that we're utterly sincere. We are transparent before God, and we're transparent before others. We're not trying to show off our righteousness, because if we're meek, we know that we don't deserve God's given righteousness. But there's no like massive hypocrisy. Now, all of us stumble. All of us struggle with different things. But I'm talking about the kind of scandal that you might get, and it's like, how did you present yourself like this, and yet really this was happening? And it's actually a very painful position to be in when we're double-minded. It's called cognitive dissonance. It means there's like two parts to us, one who we present ourselves to be and one who we really are. Now, you're a psychopath if there's no, there's a cognitive dissonance and it doesn't bother you. But there's a gift, which is have a single-minded devotion to God. It makes the whole of life, it makes the eternal wrestling and ripping apart, just makes it go. Now, by all means, we become slaves to righteousness. That means that we want to be more like God, and yet we still mess up. But there's still that single-minded desire to be more like God. It's not have all of the world and have everything spiritual. Jesus says it elsewhere. He says you cannot uh, have two masters, money and God. Same being pure in heart. It's have, have one focus. Live for God. Live for his kingdom. And the reward for that, the reward for being utterly sincere, is we'll start to see God. I want to give a clause. Before I came to faith, I was utterly sincere and utterly wretched. What it meant was I would really let people into my dysfunction, but I didn't want to change. But here it is. You can watch it on Jerry Springer, any of those other shows. Uh, People like happy in their dysfunction. I'm completely transparent. Uh, Being a Christian is we're completely transparent, but we respond to God transforming us. That's what being utterly sincere is. So there's we're not wearing any masks, but there is a desire to become more like Christ. Now, if we stopped at steps one to three, the Beatitudes, we would end up with massive self-pity. 
you know, poor in spirit, uh, I'm mourning over my sin, I'm meek. We'd kind of be left there. We'd feel like a worm. And we'd be wretched and it'd be, woe is me. If we stopped at step four, which is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and be filled, we'd be full of self-praise. But what a lot of people who have been filled with the Spirit of God do is we stay at step four and forget we went through steps one to three. And we become self-righteous. Self-righteousness was exactly what Jesus wanted his disciples to avoid at all costs. That's why I had such strong rebukes for the Pharisees. uh, Being righteous means you're really self-righteous, really concerned about the externals. Let's say there is a ladder with different rungs on it. And we like to feel ourselves a few rungs up than someone else. And we love to notice other people's sin. We love to notice how they're not meeting other people's expectations, specifically our expectations, which we say is God's expectations. And as we're self-righteous, we love to occasionally just tread on someone's fingers and watch them fall. There's no purity of heart whatsoever. And God hates that. And that's why Matthew writes the other Beatitudes that we have. He doesn't want us just to land on uh, Beatitude 4, be full of praise, or the most risky thing, be full of self-righteousness. What happens is that we look up to God. So a sober assessment of ourselves is, well, I'm all on the I need God rung of this ladder. Self-righteous people look down and say, I'm glad I'm not you. But the more we become pure in heart, we look at God at the top of the ladder. And we help each other up that ladder. So our focus is on God. It's not on ourselves. And it's not on other people's shortcomings. A classic symptom of someone who is self-righteous is they're much more concerned by other people's sins than they are their own. And they'll typically mask it by being disappointed in that, angry with this, annoyed with that person, annoyed with this person. And it's really easy to do. How many times this week did someone annoy you or fall short of your expectations? I bet you, like me, that is much greater than how many times we're disappointed in ourselves. Not matching up to who God wanted us to be. But Jesus says the reward, if you're pure in heart, you have this single-mindedness for God. He says you will see God. Now from Moses, Exodus 33, he's going up the mountain a second time. He came down with the Ten Commandments. A golden calf was built. Uh, They smashed the golden calf, crushed it up, made people drink it. That's what happens when you have an idol. It ends up tasting bitter. But the merciful God gives the instructions to Moses a second time. And Moses goes up the mountain. Find out in Exodus 33, God says, I am going to pass in front of you. But you cannot look at me face to face because you'll never live. It's like you'll be burnt up in God's glory. But then when Moses comes down the mountain the second time to give the commandments which are grace and life-giving to people, His face is glowing with the presence of God. 
when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we start to perceive God more. We know who he's like, like Christ. We start to glow with his being and his radiance and glory. People notice there's something different about us. But we cannot actually see him this side of the resurrection because we wouldn't live. So it's kind of an already not yet promise. Already, yes, you'll, you'll see God as Jesus, you'll perceive him, you'll look more like him. But in heaven, not only is there the gift of God's eternal presence, it's the first time we'll be actually able to see God face to face. Just think about that for a moment. Seeing the king of the universe, the uncreated creator, the alpha and the omega. I don't care who you are. You will drop to your knees in front of him. But you'll be able to look up and see his face. And that means to be known and fully known. And God, who knows every single thing about us, will not reject us, will not cast us away. Because this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And it's not a one and a done. He's not the guy that kind of takes a ticket and then you get on the ride. We are with him forever, seeing his face forever. As Moses came down the mountain glowing, I don't know what he felt like, but I bet it was good. We're going to have that feeling infinitely more. And we will see him face to face. That's what Jesus says. If you're pure in heart, you will see God. Revelation 22, 4. There's a few times where the prophets say that we will see God. Here it is in Revelation 22, 4. It's talking about Eden being restored. That place of paradise and presence with God says this. Talk about God's people. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. We may be downtrodden in this earth, but you are born to reign with God in his presence, in his courtyard forever and ever. You didn't just sneak in and kind of get away on the VIP list. He's going to see you face to face, and we're going to look at him face to face. And friends, I don't know what life looks like for you when you leave this building, but that is a guarantee from Christ. He is giving the law from the mountaintop. He's saying it to his disciples. Next week, we'll find out he's saying, blessed are you when you're a peacemaker. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be persecuted. But in the midst of all this, it is so well with our souls. Unbelievably well with our souls. And when it says here, his name will be on their forehead, kind of like the indwelling Holy Spirit. God has put his stamp and his mark on us. And he says, you are mine and nothing. It's going to take me out of your hand. Not even Peter. Jesus is there knowing what Judas is going to do. Jesus is there knowing what Peter's going to do. And he's still saying to Peter, who rejected him three times, loved him passionately, but was super messy. It's like, you will see him. And Peter is seeing him right now. 
If he was here, he'd say, you have no idea of the best that is yet to come. But you will see God face to face. You may not have known that before, but when you do, oh my word, you'll not want for anything else. You will be blessed. So what is our response? As we pursue God, we pursue integrity. So the worldly value that this goes against is dishonesty is okay. Now, I'm not going to go into what your Facebook or Instagram profile looks like or your dating profile, whatever it may be. But we really have a habit when it comes to kind of the marketplace where we're promoting our business or we're putting a resume somewhere. Really kind of like just a little harmless bit of exaggeration. I was fifth in line on that project, but I might as well say I led the project. Why not? I mean, people, everyone else does it. There's this constant temptation to shipwreck our integrity with just a tiny little direction, of course, because everyone else is doing it. That always ends badly. Even at the moment, there's a leadership election in England. Uh, six of the Tory candidates have all done drugs in their past. So I could be a Tory candidate. Uh, one of them has just come out this week. 20 years ago, he used to use cocaine all the time. And he wrote an article as a journalist before becoming the justice minister. Uh, he wrote an article condemning cocaine use and needing stricter laws on it. And it's come out that in the week before he wrote that article, he hosted a, a cocaine-fueled party. That is tanking for him now. That little bit of indiscretion probably felt clever at the time. It never ends well. As Christians, we'll be called to maintain our integrity, and we cannot sacrifice it. One, for our own good, it goes bad every time. As someone with a career in lying before I came to Christ, I'll tell you, you get caught every single time. As a Christian, when we seek and pursue integrity, it sometimes looks dumb to the world. But we need to do it. I will often use myself as bad examples. I'm going to use myself as two once-in-a-lifetime good examples today. Well, I was called to be honest, and I really did not want to be, but I had to be. When I was 20, I was arrested for something. I'm not going to go into detail. But I ended up with a record for a year. That record was part of the 1976 Criminal Rehabilitation Act, which meant when I'd served a year's good behavior bond, which meant for me I wasn't caught doing stuff that I was doing for a year, it was expunged, completely gone. Before coming to Christ, I liked money. I liked spending money on myself. I thought, I'm going to go into finance. I signed up to join the Institute of Chartered Accountants, very prestigious financial organization. As I joined, you have to sign a disclaimer, I, you'll disclose, You'll declare any arrests that you have had. I wasn't a Christian. I thought, I'm not that dumb, and I didn't. Lo and behold, three years later, I came to faith. Three years of doing a full-time job in finance while taking a professional qualification at the same time. I came to faith six months before I qualified. And as I qualified, I had to sign this document. And again, it said, this does not... Uh, 1976 Criminal, Criminal Rehabilitation Act does not exempt this. 
I spoke to a Christian friend and said, I feel I need to share this. Just don't be so stupid. You've worked really, really hard. I spoke to a family member. They said to me, don't be so stupid. But I knew as a Christian, one of the things that I had as a Christian that I never had before was my integrity. And so I disclosed it and I sent it off. And a week later, I got a phone call. They said, thank you. Uh, we're very surprised with your honesty. That's really not a problem. Uh, we're looking for fraud and embezzlement. So you're welcome to join the Institute. And speaking to that person on the phone, I found out they were actually, they wanted honesty. They wanted someone who was honest to join the organization. And I felt free. Like I've not sneaked in and 10, 20 years down the line, I'm going to get caught out for my past. Two years ago, I've always disclosed this like criminal conviction when I, uh, it's nothing to do with children. I have a clean record in that regard. It's to do with drugs and fighting. Uh, in any case, a new creation. Two years ago, as we were applying for residency, I found out that when I'd applied for my religious work, workers' visa for five years, my, uh, sorry, was it two and a half years or five years? Too long. Uh, two and a half years, another two and a half year one, I had not disclosed that misdemeanor. That was 100% not intentional. I had shared it with the attorney, and we found out as we switched attorneys last minute due to some level of incompetence, it hadn't been declared, which meant I was going to have to declare it. And when you declare it, you have to put a clause in your residency. And the risk is you've committed fraud on your previous visas. The risk is they'll just, why would they want a criminal? It's like, I don't know if you've ever gone to a different country. When you come to America, they'll say, are you a gun smuggler? Have you done terrorist acts? Everyone puts no, because they won't let you in. But on this residency, I had this thing. Do I just shut up? Because it wasn't on them before. It would be dumb to risk everything now. That was 2096 is that long ago, 23 years ago. But I knew the right thing to do as a Christian was to declare it. I didn't want to be giving my testimony uh, on stage one time somewhere and then be arrested afterwards for doing some kind of false testimony. But it seemed the dumbest thing possible. I didn't tell family. I didn't tell loved ones. Shelley and I had an agreement. We're just going to declare it. We went in to the residency interview. It was scary. We sat there. She looks down. Uh, she looks down. She goes, oh, I, I see that thing. Let's, let's just ignore that. And we got residency. Do you know what that has done? It means I'm not scared at any point of my past catching up with me sometime down the line and being kicked out of this God-blessed country. That's why pursuing with a pure heart, and it looks so dumb, I promise you it works out. Maybe not immediately, but never as Christians, we cannot sacrifice our integrity. That was long. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to ask people to respond now in worship. Dan, will you come up and carefully? Dan has been leading worship for five, six weeks. He's got next week off. Uh, his main gift is teaching and shepherding and leading. He also has this really uncanny ability to hear stuff from God and share it with people. If you have a counseling session with me, I don't share it to anyone, not even Shelley. 
I like you, but I don't want to be talking about you in my spare time, I'll be honest, or your issues. Someone came up to me who Dan had shared a word with. This is news for you. I said, what did you tell Dan? I said, nothing. I, no, tell me the truth. What have you said to him? Nothing. But that's how Dan hears from God sometimes. So as he's leading us in worship, I just want you to put your hands together for him now. He's exhausted. He was on the toilet at 7 a.m. having a terrible time this morning. <laughs> and yet here he is leading worship for us. Kudos to Kevin. I've been healed. <laughs> Kudos to Kerry too, who can park a truck and trailer like you have no idea. <laughs> as, as we were worshiping, uh, Erica came up, said, can we share Philippians 4.6? And if you know Philippians 4.6, it's one of those It's one of those scriptures that you can just hold on to. It says this, and he's written this letter to the Philippians about being Christ-like, and it's this kind of closing appeal. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So that's what we're doing. Do you know what the reward is from God? And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, I don't know what is happening in your life. I know that it's sometimes difficult to look up the ladder when all we see is darkness. And when we look down below us, there's a chasm that we can fall into. But let us as a church love you. Let us as a church, as followers of God, pray for you. I don't know if it's a financial, situational, emotional, spiritual, relational anxiety that you have. But we would love to pray the peace of God over you. Friends, will you stand as we continue to worship?